Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts that we might learn from you the meaning and the purpose of this altar that you're laying out before us in this Torah portion. We thank you, Father, for your spirit that guides us and directs us. We thank you that you're the one that leads us Father, that we have a, a desire to sit and learn at your feet, but may you be magnified and glorified as your children, who you've called, drawn to yourself. We sit here, Father, to learn from you, and we delight in your ways. We glorify you in your Son, Yahushua's name. Amen. Okay, if you didn't catch it um, in listening to the reading, this kind of gives you an idea of what this is all about. <laughs> This is the biggest majority of the passages in the Scripture today is about this altar. And I put the arrow here because we're going to talk about this later. You cannot get to that mercy seat, or let's just say the cover, the covering. You cannot get there unless you've gone to the bronze altar first. Cannot happen. So a lot of stuff happened here, and you can see the horns on the altar. If you remember reading passages of men and men that would run and grab a hold of the horns of the altar, because this is where they were hoping to find mercy in things that they did where there wasn't any mercy. You couldn't bring an offering, so they went to appeal to the only one that can forgive. And that's right here at this altar. So again brazen altar, and of course you can see here that there's a netting underneath it that uh, Bob and Tammy were sharing with me something, hopefully they'll share that with you, the netting, what it really, the netting represents that's underneath it. So this was a, how many of you think this thing was light? <laughs> Hence the four of the two poles and four stations on it to pick up, and so yeah, this was something that, and you had to be carding it with delicate because can you imagine dropping it or, you know, I mean, this is, this is weighty, weighty, heavy responsibility. So we're going to talk about the altar, the courtyard. But first, let's look into Matthew chapter 23, our New Testament portion. It says, Then Yahushua spoke to the crowds and his top ones, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moshe. We've talked about this before. I want to make sure that people that are new and those that are new watching, and I always have to remember because on the podcast, there's people brand new in other nations that have never heard anything that we've all talked about, and we don't want to be as clanging symbols that they can't understand. We want to be sure everybody hears and understands. So what does it mean to sit in the seat of Moses? And then he goes on to say, do what they say, but don't do what they do. What does it mean? Anybody want to elaborate? What, what is he getting at here in this seat of Moses? And you can do what they tell you in this seat, but don't do what they say. Anyone will elaborate? I will if you don't want to, but I want to give a chance for someone else to elaborate if you want to. From what I understand, the seat of Moses was like a special spot where they would go and actually read from the scrolls the exact words. But then when they got up from it, they could then do commentary and they could preach and do their thoughts on it. So when it's saying, you know, listen to what they say in the seat of Moses, you are hearing the actual Torah, the actual Tanakh. If you can imagine it like this, I've always likened it to when you're in a courtroom of today's courts, the judge is sitting in that seat. He is, he is supposed to 
quote from the law of the land, word for word, and supposed to abide by that. So in this seat of Moses, you're right, he's quoting from, or they're quoting from, the Torah of Moses. They're giving forward the law, the Torah, right? In, in judgment, judging cases, right? But when they would get up from that seat, and they watched them go about their way, their deeds, their walk, their halakha was not in accordance with what was said in the seat. So, you can imagine this was offensive to the people, probably because they knew that he was right, and it rubbed them a little wrong, right? So if you have comments or questions, raise your hand. The microphone will make its way to you. We want to be sure everybody has a, a chance to either ask. If you, if you, if you, need, under, if you need further clarity, we can do that. Um, but hopefully everybody got that. Okay. Verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut up the rain of the heavens before men, for you do not go in, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So, here we have the, I'll give you a perfect example of this verse, okay? So, in a lot of the Jewish synagogues, the people aren't allowed to read Isaiah chapter 53. Is that shutting up heaven? It is. Because it's teaching something that they don't want taught. It would be like us excluding something from the Bible, which we don't do here, so that people, we're wanting to force a direction here on what we want to teach, but no, we don't. As a matter of fact, we're one of the only congregations out there in the whole U.S. that allows people to speak so that we can get real clarity, because if, you know, if I'm saying something up here that's not true, someone's going to say, wait a minute, where is that in the Bible? That's not there, and it, we, we want accountability. So, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you go about to the land and to the sea to win one proseluto, is the Greek word. But notice it also means resident alien, and actually the Greek word here, proseluto, is found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, just in the previous couple of chapters. The same Torah shall apply to the native as to the proselyte, <laughs> as to the ger, the stranger. Same word. So it gives a little bit better idea of what's going on here. They're trying to win somebody who is wanting to join the nation, who's wanting to be part of the family, and they're wanting to put a notch in the gun saying, I got it, I won them. Is it about how many people you've won, or is it about just going and living the kingdom, and God draws the people, and who comes the Lord brings? What does he say? No one comes to me unless Bob draws him. No. Unless Barry draws them. No. Who does the work? Yes. So, very interesting scenario. But then whenever you, they won them, they make them a son of Gehenna, which is the place of burning, more than yourselves. So, very interesting words. Anyone has comments, thoughts, questions? Raise your hand. Going on into 23. So, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the Torah. What are the weightier vision, version or Provisions of the Torah. Justice and mercy. Faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting what others? Huh? Love. Yeah, so the whole Torah. So in other words, they're picking and choosing what they want to do. So this word mercy that we see here in this verse, the simple definition is the withholding of deserved punishment and relieving distress. The Greek ilios speaks of compassion, pity. One Greek lexicon tells us that kindness or good will towards the miserable and afflicted joined with the desire to relieve them. How many of you are glad that your king, Messiah Yeshua, relieved you from all your distress. Amen? 
This word appears in Matthew 23, for, 23, for example, where our master calls the Pharisees hypocrites because while they fastidiously counted out a tenth of the seeds. Can you imagine? Here we've got a pile of seeds here. One seed, two seeds, three seeds, four seeds. It reminds me much of what it talks about where they were required to leave a corner of the field for the poor, but felt if they left one stock standing, they had fulfilled the commandment. But what's the one stock going to feed? I'm not a farmer. How many years of corn are on one stock? Anybody know for sure? How many? Three? Two? So how, I mean, two years of corn, they've left one standing, and they, oh, I fulfilled the commandment of leaning a corner of my field for the poor. And it's like here, they got all this grain. We're talking, if you're a farmer, you know, mega pile of grain, and they reach in there and they count out, 10 <laughs> It's it is silly, isn't it? But this is I mean, let's face it. Are people people no matter what century or or eon you're looking at? People are people, aren't they? Do we have people that do that today? Yes. Were there people doing it at the very beginning? I guarantee you they were. People are people, right? They ignored the important matters of mercy and faith. So in a graphic example of mercy, which is this place right here you see above the text, he then told them to go and do thou likewise. Paul wrote to Titus, not by works of righteousness which anyone has done, but according to his mercy, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, God relieves our troubles by his undeserved mercy so in short, we deserved his wrath, but he is merciful and he relieves us out of his incomprehensible compassion. I'll add in there also because he's faithful to his promise to Abraham to do this that he did for us. Paul. Oh. oh, yes. Oh, hey, Rabbi, I, I was thinking about that one stock. I think that was the equivalent of a lawyer who come up with that. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. Paul. Yeah, it's interesting that he uses the word hypocrite. I mean, you know, we can kind of glean from that what it actually meant in the original language, which would be an actor or someone who is pretending. There's a difference between someone who lacks the knowledge and they may be acting in a way that's not accurate. Good word. But these were pretending to be something that they weren't. And so it's rooted in the whole stage actor, stage play, when they come on and they put on a character and they would literally put on the mask and act out a role and then they take the mask off and then they go. So, so in, in, in Greek terms, when they would put on the mask, most often the audience would not know who the character was or who the actor was <laughs> because they were hiding behind a mask and that's where you see like uh one of the icons in in stage plays and theaters you see the smiling face and uh the, the the sad face so and that's part of that language that's being used there at least in the greek for hypocrite so you're reminding me of the passage to him that knows what is right and does not to him it is okay I would imagine, like you're saying, these guys knew what was right. They knew what they should be doing, and just the flesh rose up, and they didn't do it. Okay, let's turn to our prophet portion, which is Ezekiel chapter 16. I want to remind you something about Ezekiel. How many of you would say, how many of you would say prior to today, Ezekiel was a prophet to Judah? How many of you would think that in your mind that Ezekiel was a prophet that was sent to Judah? Watch what the text says. Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 1, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. Going further in verse 4, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel, speak my words to them, 
For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Verse 17 in chapter 3, he says, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word in my mouth, warn them from me. Yes. Uh, can't the house of Israel also mean the whole house of Israel, though? Not when it's just saying house of Israel. Never? Nope. Huh. Yeah, you can, if, if all of the texts that I've seen, and if, you know, I would encourage someone to look up the text and, and see, but everywhere I've seen, you'll see it house of Israel and house of Judah even in the same verse. And so and I was, I was asking Raylene, a friend of ours uh, here in Arizona, uh, she says that, I had asked her, I said, when, when did you see, because she put out a, a teaching on when she saw the house of Israel actually as a group of people separate from Judah way before we understood it. And she told me that she found it in, hold on, I'll tell you, I think it was 1 Samuel. If she was here, she would tell you, yes, that's what it was. Um, uh, the first inclination of separation is in Judges 18, 1, 2, and 5. Judges 18, way back there. So it's the distinct group of people separate from Judah. And uh, so, yeah, it's, 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 in my opinion, it's talking about that. Now, I... I you will see some phrases that says the whole house of Israel. And I'm under the inclination that that could be referring to the, all the 12. Uh, but the phrases that saying house of Israel, everything that I've seen so far in my studies, it's pointing to just the northern 10. So, all right. Now, did he only speak to them? No, he, also, he did speak to Judah. And if you, if you do a word search for house of Israel... And just, just pick the, the, the book of Ezekiel. Uh, house of Israel comes up 10 to 1. So like Judah is only, house of Judah is only 10 times and, uh, or 8 times. And house of Israel is like, it's, yeah, it's just in, it's numerous. It's just crazy. I never, until I did that, I never knew how many times he's actually speaking to the house of Israel. Okay. So I brought that up because in context, when we're looking at verse Chapter 16, who's he speaking to? So he says, I clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I thought, wow, this sounds a lot like what he did with the tabernacle, how he wrapped it with all this stuff, and, and we're going to see how he put all this wonderful gold in the tabernacle and put all these, the, the, this fine stuff in the tabernacle. Yes. Yes, they laid on his side and uh, gave the days of punishment. I think so. Okay, he clearly made a, a, a separate punishment period for Israel than for Judah. Yes. It was very no clear. Question. Yep, no question. So here's what's interesting. So I thought this was, man, this, and you're going to read some more here about the stuff that's in here is the hand in the back. Some more stuff about what was clothed. So think of this since... What do we say, Donnie? So what you're telling me is, we're Israel, right? We're Israel. So my, my question to you is, if he's speaking to us, Israel here, and I'm not saying only us because I wouldn't leave out all the rest that are ethnic Israel, you know, including Judah. But what I'm saying is, did we receive embroidered cloth and wonderful things covered us. So he's talking, in my opinion, he's not only just talking about the wealth and the things that he's given us, but it's the word that he's given, the life, the very life that he gave the nation. Yes. Noticed in this one that it's a mix of clean and unclean cloths. Porpoise skin is not considered a kosher cloth. Yep. Silk, I, I don't believe, is a kosher cloth either. Linen is. But I thought it was interesting that these are not specifically kosher, like porpoise, anything from the ocean 
is considered evil because of the flood and Noah and all the evil spirits in the ocean. Like the passage that says, don't throw your pearls before swine. Pearls are Gentile jewels. They were not clean. If you touched pearls, you were unclean and you had to go through cleansing ritual. If you purchased pigs, they were unclean. You had to go through the cleansing ritual before you could eat and drink again. So Jewish people would take pearls to go trade because they were worth more money in the nations and they could make a better profit. But then afterwards, they had to go through a cleansing ritual. So I find it interesting that this is not all kosher. So here's my thought on the porpoise skin. And I've, uh, in the past, I've done some research on it. And I don't think people knew what was being said here on this. And I think they've rendered it you know, in what they have thought it was. I don't think that it is porpoise skin. I think it was something else. That's my, from based on my study. So this is a, this is a, a, a um, an opinion on what this Hebrew and, and Greek word is. I would say that it's not. And I hold to Leviticus chapter 11. So everything that passes those things that are in Leviticus chapter 11 for what we can and can't eat, that's the, the measurement. That's the, the yardstick of, of what we can and can't eat. Whether it's river or whether it's ocean, that's the yardstick. So, okay, Barry. Oh, did you, were you next? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, okay, so I was just thinking that, is it in the verse before it that's that is talking about him washing her with water? Before I, this verse? Yes, I think so. I was trying to look and see if it was after. But it reminded me of um, some teaching by Rico Cortez when he was talking about the adoption process and how if children were left to die in the wilderness, that somebody could take them, wash them in water and name them, and they would become adopted. And so this is always so beautiful to me because it, it, it's, like a, it's like a process of adoption. Awesome. Very awesome. Did we have another hand over here? Okay. Oh, Barry. Oh, just that one translation says fine leather, and another one here says antelope skin. Yeah, animal skin? An antelope. Oh, antelope, okay, yeah. So I believe it's a, a clean animal, so because of the prohibition for the unclean things. All right. Yeah. Verse 13, Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to, you know what the Greek word is here for royalty? Uh, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word is melucha, that can mean royalty, but it can also mean kingdom. You were advanced to the kingdom. Wow. Isn't that awesome? I put all of these things on you. I've given you my word. I've given you the Torah. I've given you the prophets. I've given you how to live life. I brought wealth to you. I've given you food. I've did all these things. And you advanced to a status and level of kingdom status. Kingdom citizens. And yet you're going to give it away and you're going to take a step down from your kingdom status and go back to... The, the common. What a crazy scenario. It just, as you read Ezekiel here, chapter 16, it's just, and I believe he's speaking to our forefathers. He's speaking to those who had the truth and then gave it away and decided to do something else. They knew what to do and didn't do it. Just like the hypocrites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So very interesting. And he says, but you trusted in your beauty. Now, what would happen when you trust in the beauty and you all these wonderful things you start trusting? So what happens is the root of what's going on here is pride. Pride sets into the people and the nation. I've attained this royalty. I've attained this amazing status. God has blessed me so well. Man, I am, things are so great. Things are going so wonderful. They stop thanking him. They stop reading. They stop praying. And just like it says in the scriptures, lo and behold, centuries later, they find the Torah scroll all dusted and covered up and didn't even realize there was a Torah scroll in the...
tabernacle. Wow. And you played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. God cared for and loved Israel, only to have it turn away to other nations, false gods. The nation had grown to maturity and become famous, but the people forgot who had given them their life. This is a picture of spiritual adultery, like apostasy, turning from one, the one true God to that which is not true. As you become wise and more mature, don't turn away from the one who truly loves you, the one who is truly caring for you. This was sin that brought death, worship of other gods. I'm going to make a stretch here. <clears throat> the word used uh, for trusted is batak, and the root is to seek refuge. So imagine hiding. We, we were using the other portion where we were talking about hiding behind a mask, seeking refuge in self or your beauty or whatever has gained you favor before, whether it's your intellect, whether it's your education or whatever has worked, now you seek refuge. And we can create these patterns of behavior. So here is where we are supposed to trust in Yah, took something that was deserted and adopted, made beautiful to the point where nations recognized that there was a beauty there. But the beauty was from him, not from within. And all of a sudden, start even today trusting in our own beauty, intellect, knowledge, whatever the case may be, we are doing this same thing where we're seeking refuge and hiding behind that instead of hiding under the wings of our Father. I, I don't need to go to Him for refuge. I've got all of these weapons we've made, the wealth, the gold, the beautiful apparel, the animals. We've got more animals than we can speak of. Rain's coming down all the time. Everything is so good. I don't need to go to God. for I've, I've reached it. I've done it. I don't need to go anywhere. And yes, this is the beginning of apostasy, turning away because you think you've made it. The pride has come in. It's the same illustration, if you want to make it, to about the man who was storing up wealth. And he says, look, I've got it now. You know, I can just <laughs> kick back and relax and storing up wealth for what? Yeah. Whether we're hiding behind the riches or whether we're going to whatever. And, you know, I'm going to go way out here. If we, scriptures tell us not to trust in the armor flesh. And sometimes we can do that with political leaders, ideologies, and everything else. So You've heard the stories in modern day times where, where people have, have amassed immense wealth only to lose it in a week. I mean, you've heard about the, the, the great crash where people were jumping off of huge buildings because they were brought from millionaire status to, to in debt in the millions. And they thought, I can't come out of this. I, I'm done. I might as well end it and jumped off the big buildings in New York. It's crazy. Yes. <laughs> I also wanted to say, and considering where she came from I, earlier in that, in that same chapter, I mean, it's crazy how the description is of where she came from. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, the cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things. And they had no compassion for her. And she was cast out on the open field. She was a port. And that's where he found her. Yes. And then he washed her. I mean, to think about where we come from. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Master, for restoring us back to kingdom citizen status. Verse 16, and you took some of your garments and made for yourself. This is from the Greek. This is from the Greek. You took some of your garments and made for yourself stitched figures and played the whore on them. And you shall not enter, nor shall it happen. Wow. Interesting graphic imagery. 
Ezekiel immediately began to preach and demonstrate Elohim's truth as he predicted the approaching siege and destruction of Jerusalem. This devastation would be Elohim's judgment for the people's idolatry. Ezekiel challenged them to turn from their wicked ways. Now, I want to point out, since we're talking about turn from your wicked ways, we're talking about pride that enters man's mind because of all that happens. We're going to talk about here in a minute about this altar. And God purposely put something in and on the altar so that we would not forget something. So I want you to keep that in mind. The purpose of the altar is to remind us of what happened here so that whenever pride comes in, we're reminded of something. So the book concludes with a message of hope as Ezekiel proclaimed the faithfulness of Elohim and foretold the future blessings for Elohim's people looking forward to the coming Messiah, the goal. So now let us turn to our Torah portion, Exodus chapter 27. And you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Revelation 16, 7 says, And I heard another out of the altar saying, Yes, Yahuwah El Shaddai, true and righteous are your judgments. A voice coming from this place. Oh, whoa. Yeah, pretty awesome. You have comments? Raise your hand. You cannot come to relationship with Yahuwah without coming to the altar first. It was huge. Look at how big this altar is. It was a large reminder of what it took to restore the relationship back to Him. The Torah leads us to the Messiah. They're offering a sacrifice on this altar. They're pouring wine upon this altar. What did Yeshua say? He raised the bread, He raised the cup. This points to the Mashiach. God instituted a, a picture, a, a point, and a, a hope of going, looking forward to the hope of the, the restoration and redemption from death sentences and curses that, that couldn't be done here at this altar. He's bringing hope to the people. I believe Adam and Eve were taught this from the garden. Yes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he did that, he was intending or did walk with man and talk with man in the garden. They were one in God. Due to sin, that no longer was available. Adonai still wants to be one with us. And to be one with us, he builds this tabernacle. This tabernacle includes the courtyard, the holy place, and holy of holies. Tabernacle is 100 cubits by 50 cubits, a rectangle. If you divide it into two equal squares of 50 by 50, in the center of the courtyard, you would find the altar. In the center of the holy of holy places, you find the Ark of the Covenant. Adonai comes from heaven down to the tabernacle to dwell with us within this ark. And within this ark, you have Aaron's rod, you have the manna, you have the tablets. On top of the ark, you have a cover, the kaparet, which goes along with the word kapor for atonement. If that cover was not on top of the ark and Adonai looked from the heavens down, he would see those commandments, which we can't, without Yeshua, fully complete. Thus, Yeshua, that gold cover being pure, that caparet, is a symbol of Yeshua in the ark, at the ark. Jumping to the altar, as you, there's no password, there's no secret handshake, there's no back door to get to the ark. 
There is one way to get to the ark. That is through the front, and that is through the way that he has provided for us. And he says, you will do it this way. As you enter into the courtyard, the first thing you pass is the, the, um, the altar. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the walls or the wood around the altar is Lukot. This is the same word for tablets, the Ten Commandments, which we just said is in the ark. The blood that was shed on that altar, I said it two or three months ago, you have the lamb, the blood of the lamb passes from death to life to slavery and to freedom. But then you have the Yom Kippur goat. Remember I said Kaporet Kippur at the ark is the atonement. So going back at the uh, altar, you have that same word, those same commandments, that same tablets. But you also have the blood that's shed there, which later on is seven times sprinkled on the ark. But there's a key thing, and I struggled with this in my life, is that you have to, when you go in to enter there by that altar, you have to give of yourself In churches today, we stop so short. They stop at the cross. And people say, say this prayer, and you're going to heaven. That's it. Or you hear people say, I'm going to put my sins on the altar. Put your drug addiction. Put your alcoholism. Put your sex addiction on the altar. Adonai does not want these profane things on the altar. He wants you on the altar. We We don't put those things on the altar. But it gets even more. So you're there at the altar, but then the next thing is the labor. Because he wants us clean. Because you cannot enter the holy place. Mm-hmm. In the holy place, there's the menorah. There's the bread, the showbread table, or the, show, the table of showbread. And there's the altar of incense. What three things do those things have in common? Dollars need to be crushed. The wheat needs to be crushed to make the bread. And the incense needs to be crushed to make the incense, the, the fragrance. But then there's another thing that you must go through. The heat or the fire. The altar, or the incense gets burnt, so it's fragrant. The wheat gets baked to become bread, and the olive oil gets lit to become light. So unless you cannot get you, unless you offer yourself up on that altar, see yourself up on that altar, you're not going to enter into that holy place where you're going to be, you have to go through that crushing. My problem is I stopped at the altar. And because I had, oh, my mom left me when I was six years old, I had that burden on me that I didn't want any of this additional crushing or this additional heat put on me from the Lord. I stopped at the altar. I thought that was good enough. But I'm missing the holy place and the holy of holies. You have to put yourself on the altar, be willing to be crushed, be willing to walk through that fire so that you can become the bread and nourishment to others, the light to your fellow man, and the sweet fragrance to the Lord. Because once you do that, then you go through the veil, and then you can be with the Lord and experience the true unity and ekad, the oneness that he said, I put forth here when I created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and created that garden. Amen. Well said. Good. So I want you to get this in your mind. Keep this altar here in your mind. This altar you see, this big old thing that's, that's right here, you just can't miss it. And I want to share this with you. The penitent worshiper, he comes to the brazen altar, seeing the hammered work from Korah's censers. All the dents now that they've hammered in, they've taken all of Korah's censers and have now put this on the altar. And it reminds them of the unrepentant hearts and the pride of Korah that rose up against the, the assembly and against Moses and the leadership, it reminds them of these people so that when they come, they're reminded, oh my goodness, I can't come without repentance. I can't come with pride. As Bob said, I've got to let myself be crushed and I've got to die and I've got to let all this stuff out so that I can now approach. Just like the master told the man who was going, he says, if you've got out with your brother, don't even think about coming to this altar. Go and make things right, and then come. This is the message for us. And people across America are coming into the congregation and churches, and they're completely forgetting about repentance. 
And we, as we read it in James 5, it's so evidently there. In all of the scriptures, it's about repenting. You can't come to him without it. So that's our message. I wanted to show you, these are some of the ancient altars, what they looked like. Some of the altars had several meanings beyond their most common association with blood sacrifice, including as a monument set up in the presence of Elohim, as a place of refuge, and as a table for a deity. Pagan altars were to be destroyed, and they were setting them up everywhere within the nation of Israel. Yes, go ahead. Is what's being promoted in society right now is that you don't need repentance. Yep. Uh, you can be your own god. I mean, look at look at the thing across the street. What is the symbol? Uh, it's not a coincidence that we're right next to this bar here with a goat blowing shofars at it, and a bridal and a bridal chamber next bri- door. Yeah. So, <laughs> man, that's all I had to say. Is we. Uh, Repentance is being removed. That's why you got the rainbow, which God created for, you know, a sin. So, hey, we will never destroy the earth this way again. But now they take it and it's pride, right? They, them, in the pride ways. Now, there's a movie back in the day. It's called They Live. And then we got they, them. Okay, I'm going to leave that there. So that was a question for you. Is the, is the rainbow now pagan? No. So you can't take what God created and make it pagan just because pagan people used it for their own evil desires. God created the stars in the heaven. You can't pervert what God created. It's there. So people want to say, oh, well, this and this. And all kinds of things have been raised up. This and that and this and that's pagan, whatever. And they, they haven't done one shred of homework or research. And this assembly always encourages you, do your research. You see something on YouTube, you see somebody say something on YouTube, you better do your research before you even quote it or or, or report it. So do your homework. Okay. (laughs) Yahuwah commanded the priest to take the bronze incense censers held by Korah and his followers to hammer them flat to cover the altar of burnt offering with them to be a memorial to the children of Israel. From then on, every time someone came to the altar of burnt offering, they noticed the rough hammered finish of the bronze and were reminded of Korah's rebellion and of God's judgment against him to those who followed him. And not just judgment, they were to remember the earth splitting open, swallowing everybody, closing up over them, completely consumed. I mean, they were completely erased. That there's just no existence. They don't even have bones to bury. It's all gone. Don't ever be like that. Come before the Almighty in repentance. Some altars were named Jacob's altar at Shechem, the El, the Elohim of Israel, Moses at Rephidim, Yahweh is my banner, Gideon in Ophrah, Yahweh is peace. Some Old Testament altars are illegitimate. Sacred pillars, high places. Interesting. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in the front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And the altar was a perfect square in contrast to pagan altars discovered that are round and Assyrian altarian Nineveh that was triangular. When Solomon built the temple, the altar was a perfect square. So why is the construction of the sanctuary introduced now? Following directly the theophany of the covenant code. A number of reasons have been advanced for this instance. Ancient Near Eastern exaltation texts demand that a deity be enthroned in a house of his or her own. So in Egypt they thought, you know, a deity needs to be enthroned. They need to have a house. The building of the tabernacle was in fact the high point, the goal and the pinnacle of the Pentateuch. Why? He wanted to dwell with, in contrast to Egypt, their deities had, had no way to dwell with. The, there's no goal to dwell with the people. Your Elohim had the house built to dwell with you. What an amazing contrast. 
In Egyptian slavery, Israel had made buildings for the pharaohs. Now they were privileged to expend their labor for Elohim's sake. But unlike the other false gods, Yahweh wants to dwell with his people to bring them to a holy state and provide the source and the goal for the redemption. Your Messiah's death on the stake. It's awesome. Hallelujah. Say it again. So I want to talk about this word altar. The Hebrew word is mizbeach. It's derived from a root word is zabak. That didn't come out real well in the, from one computer to the other. The, it's derived from this Hebrew word that's uh, Z-A-B-A-C-H, zabak. I was telling Tammy and Bob, how many of you remember, well, let me read this first. One of the most vivid examples of an altar is the one which Abraham placed his only son Isaac in readiness to sacrifice him according to Elohim's command. Isaac's place was taken by the ram that God provided. Here is, of course, the clearest Tanakh picture of the future substitute death of Master Yahushua. So, this word zavak in Hebrew sounds a lot like what the master cries out on the stake. Eli, Eli, lama, say it. Zavakteni. The ani means it's, you know, my position. So just take the ani out, zavak. Well, it sounds a lot like the word here for sacrifice, doesn't it? Zavak. I'm in agreement with Bob and Tammy that I don't believe that he was saying, why have you forsaken me? I believe that our master was crying out or was stating something about this sacrifice that he had become for the house of Israel. Eli, Eli, lama zavaktani. That's what that word means. Yes. So earlier this year, I was studying this exact verse, um, <laughs> and I came across an article, and I, didn't, I don't have the reference. I wish I did. Um, and it said that it is actually Aramaic, and um, it is a Ga- Galilean Aramaic, and it means that <clears throat> instead of why have you forsaken me, that it means this is why I have been kept, that for this is my destiny. This sacrifice is my destiny. What does it say? He was slain from the what? Interesting. Ahaz replaced the bronze altar with a replica of the pagan altar he had seen in Damascus. The bronze altar was not thrown out, but was kept for use in divination. The sacrifices were washed in the basins. The sea was a huge reservoir. Now think about it. We just read in Ezekiel, I've given you the clothing of splendor. I've given you all these things, and you're going to take now and bring in that which is profanity, and you're going to remove your place that I've placed you because you've chosen that which was not what I asked. He gave directions on how it should look. Building this new altar was like installing an idol. But because Judah was Assyria's vassal state, Ahaz was eager to please the Assyrian king, man-pleaser. Sadly, Ahaz allowed the king of Assyria to replace God. No one, no matter how attractive or powerful, should replace Elohim or his word in your lives. Can I get an amen? amen. So let's look at this word, kastar. Katsar, and it is this word uh, in Ezekiel 38.11. It's not the word that's here in Ezekiel 38.11, but it's in, I can't believe I didn't have it, the word in here. Anyway, so did you have, okay, go ahead. I'll. Yeah, when you say uh, sabachthani, it sounds like he's saying, my altar, which would lead, mm. lead credence to what Tammy was just my saying, altar. that this is my, this is my destiny. Yep. Very good. Because the eye is the yep. first person possessive. Yep. Very good. Like that. So this word, 
Katsar, a masculine noun denoting a courtyard or village, it indicates, now listen to this, a settlement without walls, or an enclosed area, a courtyard, or a place, oh, I, this is what it is. So in our text, he says you're to build a, 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 the court. So the court is this word, Katsar, okay? So the, the, the court where the altar is in is called Katsar. So it is an enclosed area. Temples often featured these temple courts. Solomon's temple featured an inner court with cut stones and cedar beams. It is combined with many words to indicate specific courts or aspects of courts. So the court of the tabernacle, the gate of the court, it is used poetically of the courts of the Almighty. So listen to this. Ezekiel 38.11 says, When Gog and Magog sees that Israel is living in safety, and he says they are in unwalled villages. Hmm. There's some connection there with this courtyard. You see, when, you're, when, you, when he is now tabernacling with you, what do you need? Walls and you know, all these things for protection. You don't. That tabernacle pictures that that he's now dwelling with you. He's the shepherd. He's the one that's guarding you. you got the pillar of fire. You got What do you have to fear? And so at some point in the future, Israel is going to reach a point, which it isn't now because I've been there. There's definitely walls and fences and stuff around the nation. But they're going to reach a place where there's not going to be those things. Hence why Gog and Magog says, oh, looky here, they, they're not protected. Ah, but they don't realize there is a protection. Yes. I don't think I'm going to get a chance. I just want to say it now that I have a testimony to share. Under a month ago, I was uh, doing a routine mammogram, and it showed that I had three clusters that looked suspicious. So I got another mammogram, and to, and I... Uh, had a biopsy, and my biopsy came back and said that it's non-cancerous. And I just, I just wanted to praise yes. our Lord Jesus and our Abba, Glory. and I just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone that prayed. Glory. And I just, it's just amazing. Hallelujah, praise but the Almighty. since they're. She said that maybe I might need surgery to remove the area because there's a lot going on there, but it's not cancerous. So Hallelujah. if that needs done. We praise the king. Amen. Okay, here's, I learned a lot from this, so I want to share with you what I learned. This is really awesome. So this word, mizbeach, which means altar. So let's look at the first letter, M. So the symbolism of the altar by making each letter of the Hebrew name for altar. So then you come with the word mizbeach, take the mem, the initial of a word, thus mechelah is forgiveness. The altar was the channel whereby the Israelite could seek reconciliation with Elohim from whom he had become estranged from them through their sin and rebellion. So then you take the next word, which is what? Zadi, which is, we're going to use this word, zechut, from the word, the second letter. Zechut means merit, gratitude, humility, contrition found an outlet on the altar. And by the exercise of these virtues, life was ennobled and merit acquired. Very interesting. The next letter, bait, blessing. Bracha, by being true to the teachings that centered around the altar, man earns the divine blessings and himself becomes a blessing, as Bob said, now become the light to people. You can now become a blessing to others because you've allowed him to come in and bless you and change your life, which brings us to the, the uh, chet, which is for the word chaim, life, the altar points the way of life everlasting to the things that abide forevermore, truth, righteousness, holiness, which comes through the Messiah, which is the goal of the Torah, which is the goal of this old tabernacle. It's the goal of everything. He is the ultimate goal. 
So it's awesome. So the altar of burnt offering was the first thing the Israelites saw as they entered the tabernacle courtyard. Here the sacrifices were constantly made. Its vivid presence constantly reminded the people that they could only come to Elohim by means of the sacrifice and what? Repentance. It was the only way their sins could be covered and taken away. In Hebrews 10, Yeshua is portrayed as the ultimate sacrifice. It teaches that we are not to seek any other means to having a personal relationship with, with Elohim. No counseling, no theory, no Eastern mysticism or modern ideas of spirituality can remove our sin. Yahushua is our only high priest today, and he's the one to put our confidence in. Amen. Would you stand with me? I've said this before. So imagine we're all a congregation there out in the wilderness. And at some point, you've done something that you're required to bring an animal to the courtyard. We all see Dan, he's got an animal, he's taking it, you know, it's his turn, you know, we see him taking an animal. And it's a humbling thing. Number one, he had to go get what? The second best? No. He had to get his very best animal that probably produced the very best lineage of the animals. He knew which animal was going to be, you know, the best, bring the best stock. He had to bring the, if, if, if it's a female goat, he had to bring the best milker. I mean, you're losing your best milker. It's a big deal. And so he's, try, he's going past Ralphie's tent, going past Barry's tent, and oftentimes because of the animal that was being carted, you could tell what the person had done. There's no hiding, is there? Very evident. Mark's heading to the altar. Oh, he's got that same animal again. Boy, he just can't get over that sin, can he? <laughs> Barry said, Barry might not be in the tent. He might be in the line behind me with his animal. So this all is vivid, vivid stuff that we've been removed from, but we need to remember sin is evermore there we need to rectify it, take care of it, which is what, why we do what we do here each week on repenting before we bring the offering up. But we need to remember it's a cost, a great cost to bring restoration. It's a great cost to bring, establish that, reestablish that relationship back to us. But what does the scripture say about why would you... Why would you nullify the death of Messiah and treat his death as nothing? Why would we want to go and do the things that our ancestors had done that removed everything that brought redemption and restoration? How terrible. Let us stay true. Let us stay on the path. And there was one other thing I was going to say. hope I don't forget it. Hmm. Okay. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word that you brought to us today. Thank you for showing us about your altar and your courtyard, that this is the place that it rectifies the things that we've done that you weren't happy with, that weren't right in your eyes, and that it's covered, covered under that blood of that substitute. We have a substitute. We have one that stepped in for us, who died on our behalf who took the punishment upon himself that was deserved upon us. We thank you for restoring us back to you, mighty one of Israel, for bringing us into right relationship that we can have communion with you, that we can sit down and have that peace meal, that meal that, that is a shared meal between you and your people. We thank you that we get to do that. We get to eat, as Messiah says, eat of this bread, drink of this cup. We thank you. You've restored us. We praise you, magnify you, in your son Yahushua's name, amen. Now we get to say, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.
Thank you everyone online for joining us. Thank you all. Have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.